This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 is a series of five events exploring how Otautahi Christchurch can achieve its climate goals. Organized by Te Butahi Centre for Architecture and City Making, each event features a range of thought-provoking speakers, from local experts providing the latest information to local businesses and residents sharing their own experiences and actions. This is the second event called Can We Be a Zero Waste City? And due to COVID level restrictions, it took place online. This program features three of the breakout sessions covering the topics of repairability, low waste manufacturing, and lobbying for change. And it's introduced by event organizer Michelle Hollis. Oh, Kyoto people, it's starting to fill up. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, everyone floods in. This is brilliant. This, despite the fact that it's an online session on a Saturday afternoon. Thank you all so much. So you are in the Kofi room. Our session is on repairability. Uh, I'll uh, just quickly um, introduce myself again. I'm Michelle Hollis, and I'm from Tipu Tahi. And uh, also, I will um, reintroduce uh speakers so we have paul smith who is from um consumer new zealand uh paul i gather you actually um started your career as a uh a mechanical design engineer so you do know really rather a lot about how things go together and we've also got with paul alan lefting who um is the owner and head honcho at Ecotech Services here in Christchurch. Alan um, knows a lot about appliance servicing as well as having a passion for conservation and the environment. I'm going to ask a couple of questions to start and then um, please just pop your questions in the chat and I'll try and manage them as best I can from there. Um, maybe I'll start with you, Alan. So are electronics and appliances in general uh, really um, just not very reliable these days. I mean, speaking for myself, we have in our house four defunct phones, two laptops that no longer work, one desktop that doesn't work, one bread maker that doesn't make bread, and one coffee machine that does no longer, one well, coffee grinder that no longer grinds coffee. So is it that the appliances are just not um, fit for purpose? Uh, it comes down to how good they are, um, how well they're built. Um, quite often, old, very old appliances are quite reliable and, and often quite new appliances are, are quite unreliable. It comes down to the, the quality of how well they're built and also how, how it's used. For instance, um, everybody's pair of headphones has um, got frayed at the end and um, it can't easily be repaired. But um, there's, there's no reason why uh, modern appliances can't last for a very long time. Uh, it, it pretty much comes down to the, um, how well it's been built and, and how it's been looked after as well. And Paul, from your point of view, what do you see the key issues 
as being durability or repairability or both? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I guess the, the, the biggest frustration for me is that so many things that go wrong are things that should be really easy to repair. So we accept that, or most people accept that over the lifetime of a product, some, it, it's going to go wrong at some point or a lot of products are going to go wrong. And the biggest issue I see is that a lot of those faults are things that we should be able to fix and they don't need specialist expertise to do so. It might be something like the, um, the blade of a blender or the bowl of a blender that fails. That's something that a consumer can fix themselves. Um, but we're just thwarted because too often those parts aren't available and the whole thing ends up being junk. I'll um, put this question to you first, Paul, actually, with Alan following up. Uh, Colleen asked, my husband and I moved back to Apple and have been deeply disappointed at what appears to be ferocious built-in obsolescence. And Apple, of course, are just notorious for changing those little bits at the end of the charges, for goodness sake. So can you comment on the big IT cultures that are at play here and what we can do? I mean, we're a tiny people at the end of the world. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to fight the fight against big tech, right? Um, they're, they're big. Um, and they've got a lot of um, industry and weight to, to lobby against everything. Um, yeah, it is a problem. And it's hard to, to point to something that is going to fix that really easily. Because if you want a phone, you want an, the latest iPhone, you're going to get the latest iPhone. Um, what we're finding is that we're trying to push people to say, do I need the latest and greatest um, model? I think that's where we can all start is to say, you know, we, we, we test a whole load of smartphones at consumer and we find there are real small incremental differences between the, the, the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 11 and 10 and whatever before that. And for the vast majority of us, we don't need the new one. We can keep going with the old one. Um, and so that's where I would start is to say, you know, let's just reset our values and say, what do I actually need out of this product? Do I need to buy the new one or shall I stick with the one that we've got? And I think that's one way we can get into big tech and start to say, you know, we don't want constant new models that are being released every single year. Alan, what about the availability of parts? Um, to what extent, for example, do people come to you looking for secondhand parts because they actually can't find a new, uh, you know, the, the re retailers says, oh, we can't get parts. Oh, yes, so, so spare parts are certainly quite a problem. Um, some spare parts are available, but they're notoriously expensive. Um, an example is a microwave oven, which is um, very easy to repair, but um, a replacement transformer for it may be $300. And that's what someone paid for the microwave oven in the first place. So there is um, this price gouging with spare parts, but um, but yes, you certainly can, and we certainly do at Ecotech Services, you can use secondhand parts because you get to know how reliable a secondhand part is. You know, you know that a, a, a transformer very rarely fails, whereas other parts like a lamp does regularly fail. So, so there's certainly lots of things that can be done by salvaging parts out of old, old items, but it shouldn't really be that way. It, spare parts should be readily available and at, at a reasonable cost. And that's increasingly not happening. Paul, is there anything by way of um, changes that you mentioned in your main talk to the Consumer Guarantees Act that would fix that? Um, the Consumer Guarantee, that one of the issues that's coming up with the Consumer Guarantees Act is this, this, this loophole that says we don't need to repair things. But the bigger issue, and it's a problem here and in Australia because they have a similar law, um, is, is that it's just not enforced. So it's very rare to see companies put 
that disclaimer up that says, oh, we don't fix things. Um, but we all know there are so many companies that don't fix things. I mean, let's just point at Kmart and the warehouse and all those appliances you buy from them. And they're never going to give you spare parts, but they don't tell you up front that they're not going to give you spare parts. So one of the issues is that we're not enforcing this. And partly that comes down to consumers not raising complaints. Um, but why are we going to raise a complaint if they give me a new blender instead of fix the one that's that's broken? Um, I, I, I'm fair. I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, and partly because people like the Commerce Commission just aren't resourced to go and do it. So, um, yeah, the, the, I don't know if changing the Consumer Guarantees Act to get rid of that loophole. I think it's a good start, but I think we just need to change our culture of just calling people out with this and doing that through our sort of governmental processes as well. So, Paul, Karen has asked specifically of you, do you think the e-waste product stewardship scheme will be good enough? <laughs> um, it could be. It could be if we if if we do a if we create a, an e-waste product stewardship scheme that that puts some real responsibility on manufacturers and retailers to to take ownership. Um, my my fear with the product stewardship scheme is that um, it's going to be a cost put on manufacturers that gets passed through to consumers, and it will help us still at the back end of being able to recycle more and develop recycling um, facilities. But the manufacturers are going to get away with it. That's my cynical hat. Um, could manufacturers do a better job of using universal components? Um, I can answer that. Um, it is the case that with modern electronics, there's a lot of um, very much purpose-built um, specialist components which um, aren't readily available for, uh, because they're made in a manufacturing run and not made available as spare parts. But there is, there's actually quite a good example um, that came out of um, the EU block. Um, the, the, the fact that we've got a universal charger for our, for our cell phones, um, apart from Apple, but that's another story. Um, the, it's called the micro B USB. That came out of um, pressure from the EU um, on mobile phone manufacturers to produce a universal charger to prevent wastage. Prior to that, there was any number of different chargers and they weren't compatible with your new model or across different manufacturers. So we can thank the, the EU for the fact that we've got um, slightly less wastage on um, cell phone chargers. I, so I see in the meeting that we have Sue Coots. So I was just wondering if you wanted to make any comments about the um, product stewardship. Yeah, um, I guess that it's really challenging. Like we can see all over Europe, there's people sort of struggling with this at the moment, whether they're going, okay, we thought product stewardship was going to push back upstream and start to change the behavior of producers and shift them, you know, shift them in it. It hasn't really been successful in the way that Paul said, it's given us a bit of cash to put into the recycling side, but it hasn't really driven change at the design side. And I feel as though that piece of the puzzle is something that people are still working to solve. Um, I guess that the the idea that um, I was talking about a bit earlier is that idea of, you know, how do you get those connections happening right across the supply and recovery chain? So you have the feedback loops going back up to say, uh, okay, well, I guess consumers can choose not to buy things which are, um, are not repairable. And in that case, you need really good information at the point of purchase just to be able to make a good decision and that's not there at the moment. Um, if we want government to say we're not going to import, you know, stuff that can't be 
repaired or you know we're going to have some rules at the border so I, I think in europe they're trying two different things they're trying one which is can we have product stewardship schemes that work or do we have laws which say you're not allowed to put these products onto the market unless they meet certain criteria so i think it's a bit of a work in progress thank you so um it's clearly phone charges are uh, a thing that really gets up people's nose we're about to finish so i wondered if alan and paul could give one piece of advice for people <laughs> for people designing and manufacturing electronic goods in particular from now on. Alan, do you want to go first? <laughs> uh, I'll go first. I um, have to think about this. Uh, it, it does come down to building items of quality, um, but of course the manufacturers aren't necessarily building items of quality because um, if they do, they won't get as many sales because people buy them uh, often buy on price and and of course you get what you pay for if you if you don't pay much you you don't get much i think i'll just leave it at that it is a big question that you're asking but uh, requires quite a lot of um um to reply to it so i'll leave, i'll see what brute um paul's thoughts are well i would say um i don't think i don't think it's possible to design something that is going to be infinitely repairable or never fail. But what we know is that there are certain things that fail. And if we focus on those and say, well, let's, let's fix those, or let's fix those, let's, let's make those repairable, then we can solve a big proportion of the problem that we have. So if you take a smartphone and you say, okay, we know the battery is going to wear out over time through charging, and we know we're going to drop it and break the screen. So if we could just say, oh, let's just design one of these things with an easily replaceable battery and an easily replaceable screen or one that's not going to break so easily in the first place, and we make those parts available to people and we make them so that people can fit them themselves, then that's the majority of smartphone problems, repair problems solved. It doesn't have to be a let's change everything that we do. So let's tackle the things we can and make a difference that way. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, everybody, for coming to the session. That's a wrap for that one. Again, Alan, Paul, I can't thank you enough. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank, thank you, you, everybody, for listening. So, kia ora koutou, no mai haidamai. You are in low-waste manufacturing now, and I am delighted to see so many people here. Now, one of the things that we have um, been doing through this uh, series of Christchurch Conversations towards 2030 is to acknowledge that some people are going to live more of their lives in um, a changed climate and a seriously changed climate than others of us looking at the colour of my hair. Uh, so William and Ben, I have, we have invited you to present a young person's vision for Christchurch of the future. And William and Ben are actually UC product design students and have a few other strings to their bow. So I'm just going to throw straight to you guys after very briefly saying hello to David Scobie, who is Business Development Manager at Concision, a Christchurch um, local company, and to Anthea Mattel, who I think of as a serial eco-entrepreneur, really. <laughs> Anthea um, is the brains behind Remix Plastics and also the co-founder of a new company called EcoSplat. But first... William and Ben, you have a few minutes only. Excellent. Cool, let's crack into it. Right, so kia ora everyone, thanks for coming. My name is Ben. 
I'm William, and uh, we co-founders of Kiwi5 Innovations. So we're a startup looking to design a better world through smarter materials. And as well as this, we're also students. And as young people, we really recognise the problem that we face and the responsibility that our generation holds um, in relation to our environment. Now, obviously, there's no quick fix, otherwise it would have really been done, to solving our environmental problems, but rather a huge list of small things that we can do. And one of these small things, which is actually quite a big thing, is working towards zero waste. So we believe uh, zero waste starts with better products and smarter materials. So we come from an industrial product design uh, background. So our everyday products, like everyone else has been saying, um, they don't need to have such a short lifespan as they do. They don't need to be made of materials that cannot be recycled or reused. Now, a combination of these things is why we have so much waste and why it's becoming such a big problem. So our solution is to essentially design out waste and create circular economies of materials across a range of products and a range of industries. These considerations need to be prioritised across the board, and our intention is to bring the fast-growing biomaterials industry to New Zealand. So natural fibres used to rule the materials world. Uh, then plastics, carbon fibre, fibreglass, polyester uh, came along, and making that makes uh, circular economies nearly impossible. So now technology is developing, um, and the world is desperately uh, needs more sustainability. And natural fibres are starting to be used again in um, growing biocomps industries. So this has enormous potential for not just new products and ideas, but also huge potential for starting to address our waste and um, environmental problems. So for example, the energy inputs required in producing a biocomposite are around 30% of that of synthetic composites. Given their lower density, they even perform better than many environmentally damaging counterparts in a lot of uh, product applications. Does anyone know what this is? It's flax. Wrong. It's actually a lily. Uh, and it's called harakiki. So harakiki uh, has the potential to uh, compete with overseas natural fibres. It's stronger, lighter, it's more sustainable. So unlike flax, harakiki is not intensely farmed. Uh, it grows in unproductive lands, uh, protecting the waterways around it. So we envisage a circular economy of materials spread across a wide range of product applications. If we can bring materials into circular economies, products can have a life after their end of life. But for this to happen, we need to design it in. This starts with looking how and why we design products and introducing natural and or biodegradable materials into products starting now. If we can make these circular economies of materials now and prove to the world that they will work, then I believe that leading up to 2030, we can start to flatten the curve of environmental damage that has already been done. So this brings us to our circular economy story. So an example of this in action is our Harakiki uh, Tahi board, a product that is, uh, use, uses one of our kiwi fibre materials, which combines recycled plastics that would have otherwise ended up in landfill uh, and combined with Harakiki fibre. The benefits of this are like, it makes the plastic go further, enhances the properties, uh, including durability, lightweightness, and can be recycled and reused in countless products after they reach your end of life. Plastic, as you'll know, is one of the most polluting materials that there is but it's actually almost one of the most recyclable as well, if it's managed properly. The material on this skateboard, for example, is 75% recycled plastic and 25% harakiki fiber. Our bioplastic is designed to eliminate waste, replace wasteful materials and perform even better than synthetics. We plan on applying the same methodology to industries like automotive, marine, sports, construction, and even aerospace. But the skateboard is just the beginning. So the purpose of our first products like the biocomposite scale was to paint a holistic picture of what a circular economy of materials could look like. 
and to prove to the world that we, um, that we don't have to produce as much waste as we do. Circular economies of materials will be a solution uh, and more sustainable material flows moving into the future. Otutahi is the perfect proving ground for this. It is a thriving startup community and with the whole of the South Island at hand for potential plantings and supply chains, it's the perfect place to build Aotearoa's first circular economy of materials. Thanks for listening. Feel free to visit our website and follow our journey. Cheers. Thank you both. So at this point, I'd like to bring in uh, Anthea first, actually. Anthea, in the context of your businesses, you have often used um, material that would otherwise either have gone to landfill or might have gone to recycling. What do you see as the place of recycling in the whole scheme of uh, low waste manufacturing? Like what, and why did you end up starting a business that actually used plastic? Um, kia ora everyone. So uh, my answer to that has already actually been said quite a lot already today is that um, we need to re redesign the system. And so recycling isn't the answer. I think it was initially seen as the solution for waste, but now we can see that it's way more complex than this. Um, so and so you, we need to... Sorry. And yeah. yeah, for you as, as a business person, I know you've said um, to me personally that um, you, it, it, in many ways, especially the earrings, the beautiful earrings that you do, it yeah. wasn't the earrings themselves, it was a bigger story. Just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I, so my work is focused around sustainability education, so educating people about um, these problems with zero waste and how like the problems with the system in general and so for me I'm not the main goal isn't to divert heaps of waste from landfill um obviously earrings are quite little and it's only going to use so much and even with the like thousands of pairs of earrings that I've made um it's still a pretty small amount of plastic diverted but by I see plastic recycling as a way to engage consumers in that conversation who wouldn't necessarily otherwise be thinking about it and so this can be people that are wanting to be conscious consumers um, and then I can sell that they can buy a product that is sustainably made from a um, recovered material but then it also has all of that story with it so mm -hmm. um, yeah so, and especially with things like the uh, ice cream container lid stuff that I make is that the plastic that that's made from can theoretically be recycled, but doesn't get recycled in Christchurch. And so that's a way that I can um, explain some of the problems with this current, the current stuff that we have. Can I bring David in here? David, concision technology effectively can significantly reduce the amount of building and construction waste. Can you tell us just a little bit about that and where you fit into the sort of waste minimization? low waste manufacturing picture. Thanks, Michelle. Um, yeah, Concision is an offsite manufacturing company and we use technology to build a house essentially. Um, <clears throat> so we have a series of uh, computer um, software programs, CAD works and BIM models. And through that, we optimize the use of raw materials. So um, for instance, uh, uh, when, we, when we design a house that goes into our modeling sch scheme, 
and it works out how much timber it's going to use and how it's going to cut that out of our available stock of timber. Um, we then release that to the factory and, for instance, on our CNC saw, it actually then starts to look at several houses that we're building and understand how we can uh, optimise the timber throughout all of those buildings. And, and that means that um, typically in a house, we'll, in our factory, we'll have about 2.5% waste of product. It does the same for jib board and rab boards and all the other materials we use. Uh, and that effectively means for a, a standard house that we'll, uh, a concision house would, would be about a third of the waste um, produced as a normal building would be. Um, so we, we take, uh, I suppose, a manufacturing approach. Uh, if you look at the amount of waste that's generated in, in the construction industry, um, you know, a, a company like Toyota would never be in business if it was it was generating those that that amount of waste. Um, so so we have taken that sort of philosophy and said actually we need to apply that into the building industry and and come up with ways of of just eliminating the waste in the first place. So one of the things about yours um, that that is striking is that you're um, you're tackling a very wasteful industry. In fact, that when we when we talk about building waste, it's waste that never actually gets used, does it? It's it's unused material going straight to landfill. That's correct. I mean, so so the the waste that would normally occur in building a house is is almost unforgivable waste in the fact that it's never actually had a useful life to start with. The tree was cut down, it was cut into timber, it went, and it never got to be a house. You know, it sold its purpose never actually happened. It went straight from uh, going through a whole process, all the, the raw materials, the energy put in to convert a, a tree into a, a piece of 90 by 45. Um, and then, you know, at, at times up to 25% of it would get chucked into the skip before it actually ever got to be put into a house. Quick thoughts from all of you. 30 seconds each on end of life. What can we do for end of life? Of your materials oh not myself sorry I was, I was... <laughs> uh, Ben and William um, Paul has posted a question specifically what can your composite material be recycled at end of end of life yes it can so the um, types of plastics that we're using are thermoplastics which means that they can be remelted and um, remolded into a new product theoretically like as many times as you like um, after about 10 times, the materials start getting weaker, but it can still be used for different applications after that. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty circular if you treat plastic correctly. Did David or Anthea yep. want to comment at all? On, on the end of life, it's interesting in, in that um, you know, a house... Um, a house can can last for an extremely long time if well looked after and well maintained, and as we talked in the last um, group, repaired um, and and looked after. But but quite often a house is pulled down, and I'll, I'll use a term for aesthetic reasons. So somebody you know, and especially it happens in Auckland where they buy a um, you know, not banging Aucklanders, but they you know a, a house is brought, they demolish the old one to put up something which is better. Whether the house that was there was was probably perfectly good. Um, a house should only be repaired, ripped down when, you know, I don't know, the, the woodworm has eaten the wood, um, not beforehand. And then that wood is obviously of, of no use at, at that point. But I think a lot of a lot of times we don't need to 
uh, demolish houses the way we do. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm going to have to call the session to a close there, I'm afraid. Um, yes, thank you all again. I'm just going to see whether we've got our speakers. I can see Sue. Hello, kia ora Sue. So you people will have met Sue before. Sue Coates is from uh, the Zero Waste Network and she's uh, joining us for the session. Colleen Philip is actually joining Anthea. Colleen and Anthea are both uh, talking in the session in, in their capacity as being on the executive of Sustainable Autotahi Christchurch. Um, and Sarah Templeton. Kia ora. I'm actually going to start by posing a question to Sarah. We wanted to run the session because it seemed to us that there are many, many pressing issues that require something more than us just individually knowing which bin to put the, um, the ones and yep. twos in. Um, so, uh, Sarah, amongst all the um, angst and effort that goes into making effective submissions and lobbying and so on, can you tell me, has a submission ever actually changed your mind? Oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I, I hear two things from people, right? I, I hear that people don't engage because they don't know how or they don't know sort of where to start, that kind of thing. Um, and the other one I hear is that they don't engage because they don't think it makes a difference. And I used to be like that. So I didn't engage in those kind of things until um, post-quake and it was more on uh, earthquake stuff. Um, and I was never sure if it made a difference or not. And now I'm on the other side. I know that it does and it makes a difference all the time. I can't think of a single thing that we've consulted on where we haven't made uh, changes based on submissions. What sorts um, of things will yeah. do it for you? Because there are different types, aren't there, on a city, any kind of city council or, yep. you know, whatever. What does it for you? Yeah, so councils are human beings, right? I'm just a mum with three kids um, down the road. And for me, mostly, I'm, my brain works. I, I like the technical stuff. I like the evidence base, those kind of things. Um, but actually, what makes a difference for a lot of councillors and still makes a difference for me too is hearing people's personal stories about how it makes an impact on their lives. So a good submission will probably uh, cover both of those things. So scientific research, evidence base, examples from overseas or nationally is better. Those kind of things are really good. Um, the economics behind stuff, that kind of thing. But actually um, turning up and saying, giving really clear examples of things in your own life, or your own community. Uh, really connects at a as a person-to-person -person level with the decision makers. You said turning up. Turning Does, up. Is, is that actually, is a submission in person in your experience actually a lot more effective? It's way more powerful. Um, so it's it's really good to have written submissions. Um, and that, you know, numbers count as well as groups. Group ones often only count as one submission, even if there was lots of people behind it. So having a group one from an organization as well as lots of individual written ones as well. And not necessarily pro forma, but lots of people from the group writing. But if you turn up in person, you guarantee that the decision makers are going to hear what you have to say. Sometimes we get thousands of submissions and it's sometimes actually not possible to read every single one. Um, and councillors have a varying level of commitments and and ability to actually read all of the submissions. We get really good summaries of the general themes and things. Um, 
but if you can turn up in person and take your five minutes or 10 minutes or however long you get to really connect with the counsellors. So in, in your work, um, yep. I, I'm assuming you're mostly talking to um, central government, presumably to the uh, policy advisors as well as the politicians. Yep. What are the things that you find the most effective? Uh, effective for what? Uh, I mean, in, okay. in terms of the, the, the long-term work of getting your message through. Um, so we don't, I mean, our staff will have a lot to do with central government and they, they work oh, um, sorry. on these things. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah, I meant that for this question to be for Sue, that oh, makes excellent. a lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense. Okay, hang on. <laughs> excellent. Okay, I'll save you some pain. Um, Good. Yeah, the, I guess the thing that um, I think about a lot is, you know, there's obviously the big windows of opportunity that you get to have a say, like um, what's coming up for us in the waste sector is the Ministry for the Environment are consulting on waste strategy, the legislation and the emissions reduction plan in the next few months. But there's a lot of opportunities you have to talk with them before they come out with their formal document and having those conversations with people in government about what they're working on, what sorts of things they're thinking about, feeding in ideas and kind of, I guess, challenging yourself to, to do the research and, the, and the, um, the kind of the thinking that Sarah was talking about, look around the world, see what's going on, share that with them early is really powerful because it means that they have that opportunity to talk it over with you, you can understand their point of view before you get to that final stage of being able to write your submission. Anthea, you were involved um, really in leading Sustainable Autotahi Christchurch's submission on the uh, Waste Management Plan recently. Um, how did you go about doing that? Um, so I work in sustainability and so I was I'm lucky to have like a few years of experience in that to pull from. Uh, so I stepped forward to write the submission on behalf of Sustainable Otatahi, uh, but it took a lot of work and it's the sort of thing that if you're working in a full-time job with all of these other commitments and stuff, it's, it's hard to make the space to write that much in depth um, on something. Uh, if it's on top of all of your other things and so it's been uh, awesome for me to be a part of Sustainable Tatahi because it means that I have only really put that much time into the waste minimization plan um, and then I can just back up other people in the group to write to their strengths uh, but it just pretty much was me reading through taking notes and then writing like spewing all of the information that I had and all of the suggestions that I had um, and then running it past a few colleagues and stuff as well. So, mm -hmm. so it was quite a big in-depth, um, like thorough submission. But yeah, I think yeah. any submission is good. So even if you don't want to um, put that much into it, uh, yeah, you can kind of just speak to the things that you're confident to speak to, yeah. Sarah, Given how much effort is involved in ordinary people making submissions, what's the story with only counting a group submission as one? Because if I agree entirely with what someone else says, um, I mean, it seems to me it's some kind of incredibly unscientific opinion polling going on here. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see what makes a difference and what doesn't. So numbers seem to make a difference when you have a consultation that's a yes or no, do we do something, do we not do something? 
and when you get like a public sentiment one way or the other. It's really tough with group submissions. So for example, we get residents associations who will submit to us on things. And residents associations will vary across the city. Some are a small group of sort of four or five people who call themselves a residents association and are only really representative of those four or five people. And some are much more engaged and they check with their community about what they're feeling ahead of submitting. And it is much more representative of what that community feels. And so it's really hard to assess what weight to give those. Um, I think doing both is important. So I think a group has a certain perspective and it's coming from a group perspective. Um, and so SOC, those kind of groups who do engage with us, but an individual has a different perspective as well. And actually doing both is important. You can say, you know, this is what I believe. And I also support the SOC um, submission, those kind of things, absolutely. And that won't count as one submission. But if you get like just a pro forma where someone, everyone's just filling in the same form and putting their name to it, that's not as powerful, if that makes sense. And can I just add to that um, from Sarah that the my perspective on it, because I work in that area, was more of like a industry like yeah. examples that could be done versus being just a person in the community and the experience yep. from that end. So it's different different um, things that I would put forward compared to somebody else, yeah. That's right. And, and so there's two things you kind of ask for. There's the whole, yes, go ahead and do something kind of, we support the direction of travel. But there's also that more technical expertise that comes from industry, industry experts saying, these are the specific changes and wording changes that we'd like you to make. So we got that in the um, climate resilience strategy. So we have people saying, actually, this is something that you're missing. So the actual development of pathways to get to the targets wasn't there. Um, and so we added that um, based on those submissions and some specific wording changes. Um, we added alignment with the SDGs based on submissions as well. So I guess this is where being part of a group where you might have access to someone like Anthea would be really useful. Yeah. Colleen, do you want to um, comment any more about the work that Sustainable Autotahi Christchurch does and how you bring people together? I want to reinforce the fact that it is a place we have expertise in third sector mm -hmm. organisations like Sustainable Autotahi, and we have ways of cooperating, collaborating together within the organisation, but the organisations also collaborate with each other. So just one example about last week, just a few days ago, SOC put on a submission on the Heathcote, Opoahu Heathcote River draft stormwater plan. Mm. You know, that's not something that a lot of people would have necessarily personal expertise on. We worked together with the Opoahu Heathcote River Network. We talked about what they were proposing. We brought everybody together who did have some expertise. And then we went away as, as two organisations and wrote submissions. And then beyond that, you can have individuals who then can write submissions, having been, had access to that expertise. So I want to reflect back to what you were saying earlier, Sarah, you said a lot of times people don't know where to start. Well, one place they can start is to find a community organisation that shares their passion, that is working on their passion project, get involved with that, and then, you know, that's, a, that's an access for them to, yeah. to be able to engage um, we'll, you know, it can break down some of the barriers that can people can feel. We are better together than on our own, even though we do need those individual submissions to add power to what the groups say. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And having having a group like yours who can give key pointers for people, they, they, these are the key changes we might like mm-hmm. if you could incorporate those into your individual submissions. So I've just submitted on um, a couple of things that I don't have expertise on for government legislation. So the um, conversion practices prohibition bill, I don't have expertise in that area. And I was able to look at a couple of groups who did and take some of the key points from these. And I found that um, much more empowering for me to feel like I could make a submission. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Sarah, that connection between the big ideas that maybe a group can pull together and then being able to insert your, how does it really affect me as a family or yep. me, you know, me as a person and to connect, yep. the, connect the dots between those two things is very important. Mm-hmm. And if, the, if you do have a, something where there's a controversial thing, um, and I know it feels weird sometimes, but you can, um, you know, you and your partner could do a submission each if you think that numbers are going to count, um, because sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. So, yeah. Interesting. I think we are, yes, we are out of time. I've just got the nod. We're out of time. So thank you all so much. Thank you to our, our four contributors, Sarah, Sue, Colleen and Anthea. Thank you everyone for coming. Yeah, thank you. Kilda. Welcome back to the main room for our closing remarks. Okay, so we hope that the breakout sessions have sparked some interest and you're ready to engage with one of the excellent local and national uh, initiatives that are contributing to a zero waste future. So now I'd like to uh, invite Christchurch City Council Sarah Templeton to say a few words. Sarah is Chair of the City Council Sustainability and Community Resilience Committee. Sarah, over to you. Um, I'd like to start by thanking Jessica, Michelle, Erica and other organisers for this and the other hui in the series. It is really important work and across the city, the country and the planet, others are mobilising as well. They're sharing knowledge and making connections because that's really essential um, to the mahi to change the conversation and change behaviours in the direction that we have been heading in. I've got to say one of the... um, concepts that I connected most to today I guess was um, from Kahurangi who described the, the waste to landfill as um, food that Papatuanuku can't digest um, unlike organic matter that can nourish the planet and I, I really like the way that that, um, that was framed and um, I'll be taking that with me from today which is great. Um, this mahi really does take all of us individuals, groups, communities, businesses to do our bit But without that larger scale change and direction by central and local government, it won't be enough. Um, And that's why my plea for everyone today or my challenge is to to get involved at that political level and to lobby for change, both at a central government and a local government um, uh, space. I'm happy to help people with, with that kind of stuff. And so feel free to get in contact with me for what makes a good submission, what things you can do, those kind of things. But there is lots, lots happening. Um, and often you can find those um, things to do on actually on social media. So uh, politicians share upcoming consultations, those kind of things. Um, and getting involved in that space is really important. At Christchurch City Council, we've got our um, climate resilience strategy, Kiaturo um, Te Ao, which translates as ensuring the world continues, which I which I love. Um, and uh, program nine within that is zero waste or the circular economy. Um, it has the target 
the strategy has the target of halving our emissions as a city by 2030 and getting them to net neutral by 25, 2045. And that's gonna take a stack of work from all of us. Um, and we can't do alone, it's a city strategy. So what I'd like to do today is just to challenge you all to get involved in that, um, that high level conversation, lobby for change, get um, to know your local councillors, um, have coffees, get involved on their social media, um, write letters to the editor, all of those things, change public sentiment um, and make sure that you give the decision makers the mandate to make the change that we need to see in the world. Um, so thank you for all of your mahi, for everyone that's here today, whether you are here as an ind interested individual um, on behalf of an organisation, whether you've been speaking or organising, thank you for all of the work that you do. Um, and I look forward to seeing you at the next event. Namihi nui Sarah, thank you um, very much for those words. And thanks to all of our speakers, our wonderful speakers for all your insights today. Um, just quickly, I, I would like to thank uh, the Christchurch City Council, It's Time Canterbury and the Huritanga thread of the Building Better Homes, Towns and Cities National Science Challenge for helping make this event possible. And I'd like to say, say thanks to you all for joining us. Finally, I invite you to consider what part you want to play. How will you help build a circular economy, a zero carbon future for Ōtutahi Christchurch? We do face looming irreversible tipping points in nature, but as the former UN climate chief Christiana Figueres recently said, we can also unleash positive system tipping points and the solutions that are already beginning to emerge. So how can we work together with courage and optimism to make this happen here in our city? Thank you for being part of Christchurch Conversations. We hope that you'll continue this conversation with your whanau, friends and colleagues, maybe reach out to one of the organisations represented here today. And we hope next time to see you in person. Norera, tena koto, tena koto, tena tato katoa. This has been part four of Can We Be a Zero Waste City? The second event in the Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 special series on how to achieve the city's 2030 climate targets. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for kindly sharing this recording. Podcasts of this series are available from the Plains FM website. Just search Christchurch Conversations. <laughs>